You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR and Uprise Radio would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, the true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land that we are broadcasting on. I want to pay our tribute to the elders from the Kulin Nation's past, present and future. And also thinking about Jack Charles and Archie Roach, who have gone in the last um, few weeks and have been pretty instrumental in a lot of uh, 3CR shows and uh, a lot of the hearts and minds of a lot of people at the station as well. Our thoughts go out to them and all the people connected with them. And thank you to listeners for tuning in to another episode of Uprise Radio. It feels like quite a while since we've been um, giving our voices to you, but we have been still giving some great shows to you and it's good to get the content from our fundraiser out there. I hope everyone's been enjoying uh, the great shows that we've had with with all of that, talking about climate and capitalism. Absolutely. And I think that what we're going to be talking about today plays a huge part in the role of climate destruction uh, and is a very big and main driver of capitalism and and the death machine that it is. So uh, it's now the 21st of September and we're a couple of weeks away from the Disrupt Land Forces uh, Conference, which runs in Mianjin, Brisbane, from the 1st to the 7th of October uh, in response to the Land Forces Military uh, Conference rather that will be happening in a couple of weeks. There's going to be quite a few actions and you can be listening in on 3CR because there will be quite a quite a bit of information about what's going to be happening uh, and to get a little bit of the history around uh, protest uh, and resistance uh, to the military industrial complex in so-called Australia. So we're going to start off today with a short history of the Australian arms fair protests from Ian McIntyre, which we'll play for you now. And then we're going to be joined by well-known 3CR legend and anti-military activist Jacob Grech for a bit of a chat afterwards. Hi, I'm Ian McIntyre. In this presentation, I'm going to provide a short history of anti-arms fair protests in Australia, primarily focusing on those which occurred from 1986 to 2008, as well as touching on 2021's Disrupt Land Forces protest. Each protest occurred in a different context and experienced differing levels of success. One key similarity in strength, however, was that in each case, campaigners chose to go beyond the networks and movements they primarily identified with to build coalitions. The enormous waste of resources associated with arms manufacture and the uses to which weapons are put in facilitating the exploitation, repression and destruction of people and places means that the associated issues range far and wide. Clearly the promoters of arms fairs believe that bringing manufacturers and weapons dealers together in one place at one time has the potential to normalise and build the weapons industry as well as to make them, as the organisers, a lot of money. On the other hand, the holding of high-profile arms fairs has had a long history of backfiring, as they can serve as a unifying target with the potential to mobilise a wide range of opponents. The issue of arms fairs in Australia first came up in 1986, when DeSeco Proprietary Limited tried to hold the Pacific Area Defence Exhibition, or PADEX. This was billed as, quote, the first ever exhibition of global defence equipment in the Southern Hemisphere, 
and was promised to be one of the largest exhibitions of its type in the world. Paydex initially attracted interest from over a hundred potential exhibitors hailing from 15 different countries. A number of campaign against Paydex coalitions sprang up around Australia, bringing together religious, union, peace, solidarity and environmental campaigners. They were told by political insiders and others that they didn't have a hope of stopping such an arms fair. However, although the peace movement was beginning to wane from its recent peak, the coalition nevertheless was able to draw on networks and sentiment, which in recent years had seen anti-nuclear rallies bring hundreds of thousands of Australians into the streets. The Nuclear Disarmament Party had won over 7% of the national vote in 1984. These achievements were, in turn, linked to over a decade of protests against uranium, US military bases and US warship visits. And further power was drawn from the fact that 1986 was the UN's International Year of Peace. Framing their campaign around the International Year, the Coalition was able to convince the Australian Council of Trade Unions to place industrial bans against the arms fair. This forced the event to be moved from Sydney to Darwin. It was subsequently abandoned as the Federal Australian Labor Party government, under great pressure, eventually refused to lend its support. DeSeco did not give up, however. Following the Paydex debacle, the company drafted in former National Return Services League President Sir William Keyes. Using his connections, they launched a new event, the Australian International Defence Equipment Exhibition, or ADEX. By this time, the peace movement was in decline, and the federal government had released its 1987 defence white paper, calling for a dramatic increase in military spending. With the Hawke government eyeing arms exports as a way to offset the cost of importing new weapons, the government lent much support to the ADEX 89 event. Held in Canberra, it eventually saw 214 companies, governments and official bodies from 14 countries take part. Opposition to ADEX came in a variety of forms. Following a series of debates over appropriate tactics, the Stop ADEX campaign worked towards organising a blockade. Whilst the 1989 protests were unable to majorly disrupt the arms fair, they succeeded in drawing attention to the issue, and off the back of this came two years of frenetic campaigning. This came in the context of many new activists being mobilised and older ones re-energised through protests against the Gulf War, which was the first conflict the Australian government had officially been involved in since Vietnam. The Dili massacre in East Timor and the ongoing war in Bougainville both of which involved forces using Australian-made military material, further intensified a focus on the arms industry. And a series of recent forest blockades had demonstrated the ability of disruptive action to shut down destructive activities. Tapping into this upswell, the Stop ADEX campaign branched out significantly in 1990 to include supporters in every state. Regular protests were held outside arms companies and state ministries, and an enormous lobbying and education campaign was run by a myriad of churches, unions and social justice organisations. Various union bodies passed resolutions against the arms fair, whilst the Australian Capital Territories Trades and Labor Council endorsed a picket line of the site and provided numerous resources. A women's telephone link-up was also organised across all the states of Australia, allowing feminist networks to share information and organise for a women's action in Canberra. 
With the national campaign gaining momentum, July 1991 saw an initial victory for the campaigners, as the ACT's government moved to cancel DeSico's booking at the National Exhibition Showgrounds. After DeSico threatened to sue for breach of contract, the ALP-led minority government backed off from a full cancellation, but held firm in passing a motion to, quote, endorse the principle that the Australian Capital Territory should not be used for promoting the international arms trade. With this in place, it was made clear to DeSico that ADEX would not be held again on Territory Government property. Thanks to all this, campaigners went into ADEX 91 with the wind at their back. Securing a campsite directly across the road from the exhibition site gave them an extra advantage as protesters could literally wake up, roll out of bed and start blockading. Indeed, they quickly got a jump on DeSeco by turning up a week before ADEX 91 was officially to begin. Picketing of the site kicked off early and mushroomed into a major blockade involving up to 2,000 people and closing off all entrances. Groups congregated at and occupied different entrance points based on their political beliefs and tactical preferences. Those adhering to strict non-violent action principles blocked one gate with their bodies and star pickets. They engaged in dialogue with the police and checked that horse floats and vehicles coming in and out of an equestrian show were not being used to sneak in ADEX-related equipment. Another gate at the other end of the exhibition site saw a different set of activists build barricades which were later set alight, out of car bodies, pickets and barbed wire. Literally occupying the middle ground between these two gates, another set of protesters combined the use of tripods, parked vehicles and physical picketing to further deny DeSeco the use of the showgrounds. At points, police cut through fences to get equipment in, and with kilometres of fencing to defend, some protesters kept on the lookout, wandering from gate to gate. Unprepared for such a large and determined blockade, and with DeSeco unable to get their displays on site, police repression increased. Canberra's paramilitary operations support group were brought in and paraded before protesters with shields and batons, whilst members of the Australian Federal Police were also drafted in from across the country. In response to the rising level of police violence, the majority of protesters remained non-violent, using humour, such as singing Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, to relieve tensions. The police eventually launched a huge operation, taking over 180 protesters into custody. This allowed the arms fair organisers to finally get their equipment into the site, but they now had less than 24 hours to set up. Faced with ongoing protests, some exhibitors pulled out, and a number of ticket holders chose not to attend. The ADEX 91 protests dominated national TV news reports and newspaper headlines for over a week. The majority of these stories were negative towards the demonstrators, but authorities appeared to become concerned about how daily images of police attacking protesters might be perceived, even if they were couched by media outlets as being necessary to restore law and order. Towards the end of the protest, police allegations against the protesters became over the top, with false claims aired of protesters wielding acid-filled condoms and nail-studded avocados. Police paraded cooking knives, theatre props and similar items seized in a raid on the protest camp as evidence of violent intentions. Despite none of the police receiving wounds consistent with the use of such weapons, and no one being charged with their use or possession, the mainstream media largely reported these claims as fact. The divisions during the protest were echoed in debates that followed in its wake. 
While some hail it as a victory and a return to militancy, which will be echoed in later demonstrations against George Bush Senior and university fees, others felt that the negativity generated by the media and burnout associated with such a long and fraught campaign outweighed any gains. While the impact on the arms industry as a whole and outcomes for progressive movements were contested, in terms of the narrower goal of stopping ADEX, the blockade was undoubtedly a success. An attempt by DeSeco to hold an ADEX 93 event in Canberra on Commonwealth land, outside of the ACT government's control, failed. The company then attempted to book a similar event in Queanbeyan under the title of Oztec, using a fairly flimsy argument that weapons would be just one of many forms of technology on display. Permission to use local council facilities was scuttled following intense lobbying from religious, peace and other groups. Ironically, the labelling of largely non-violent protesters as quote, thugs and terrorists by DeSeco was to serve the peace movement in the long run. Wherever the company went, they found that local and state authorities were unwilling to risk bringing such chaos to their town. For the next 17 years, the arms industry shied away from holding the event on the scale of ADEX. Instead, they chose to meet and display their wares behind the facade of air shows or away from public view in hotels and military installations. However, with the memory of ADEX fading, a new company emerged in 2007, announcing it would hold the Asia-Pacific Defence and Security Exhibition at the Adelaide Convention Centre from November 11 the following year. The arms fair received a hearty endorsement as well as financial support from the State Australian Labor Party RAND administration, who, in the midst of a collapsing manufacturing sector, had been talking up South Australia as the defence state for some time. From late 2007, peace groups began lobbying against the arms fair, and by the middle of 2008, coalitions of peace, environmental, solidarity and other groups in Adelaide, Sydney and Melbourne had begun to coalesce around the aim of planning a blockade for November. By choosing to open the exhibition on the 90th anniversary of the ending of World War I, arms fair organisers have once again handed their opponents an important public relations advantage. Nevertheless, due to the peace movement experiencing a lull and taking into consideration other factors to do with the timing and location of the arms fair, many campaigners doubted they would be able to draw the numbers needed to shut the event down. Some, however, believed that a disruptive protest could be used to draw public attention and provide a base to build on in the way that ADEX 89 had. With the anti-arms fair campaign gaining momentum, the shock announcement came in early September 2008 that the arms fair would be cancelled due to security concerns. As in 1991, the demonisation of protesters immediately came to the fore, with the South Australian Deputy Premier claiming that the decision was made due to expectations that, quote, feral low-life people that want society to be in a state of near anarchy for their own perverse pleasure would be descending on Adelaide. In spite of the predictable statements about evil protesters, it soon became evident that the projected costs of policing had been the determining factor in the cancellation. The South Australian Police had advised the government in previous days that they would require 500 officers for the protest and that annual leave would have to be cancelled for the entire force. This would cost far more than the government was willing to pay for an event, which already had the potential to reflect badly upon them. The role of political and financial costs was further reinforced by arms fair organisers after they admitted that the Commonwealth Government and the Department of Defence had failed to get behind the project, 
further undermining its viability. Once more, the political and economic costs of holding an arms fair had been shown to outweigh the potential profits, and the peace movement took heart in a rare victory. The weapons industry once again returned to low-profile gatherings and the use of air shows. And it would be another 13 years before a new large-scale event, the International Land Defence Exposition, aka Land Forces, was held in Australia, this time in Brisbane in 2021. Despite occurring in the midst of a pandemic, with lockdowns taking place in other parts of the country, this too was opposed by a coalition, which, under the banner of Disrupt Land Forces, brought together 300 people to engage in seven days of protest. Equipment was occupied before and during the arms fair, and a launch held involving solidarity fires being lit in Musgrave Park and the highlands of West Papua. Noisy and creative protests plagued local arms firms and the Expo, all of which resulted in community building, 37 arrests and much media coverage. So we just heard there from Ian McIntyre giving a short history of the Australian Arms Fair and the protests that uh, have sprung up in resistance to those arms fairs. And we're joined now by Jacob Grett, who is a presenter on a Friday rave. Uh, an anti-military campaigner and was instrumental in the Stop ADS campaign back in the late 80s and early 90s. Hey, Jacob. Yeah, how are you, Mercedes? James? Also a part of that protest in Adelaide too, Jacob. Yeah, yeah, well, so were you. Everywhere. Yeah, uh, I think the important thing, one of the important things um, Ian said um, in that thing towards the end of it was that while some people didn't think it was worthwhile because of the pain involved, and there was a lot of pain, um, we did actually stop. First of all, Paydex, nine, um, 87, 86, and then Adex 91, and then the APDSE in 2008. We stopped them, and the peace movement, we don't, we're not real, we haven't got a lot of experience in winning, to be, to be brutally honest about it. And so, you know, the, the, there was a bit of the, there was a bit of that. Yeah, we won, so what? And that's always that's always the case. We, you know, we just because we stopped ADX doesn't mean we have an environmentally sustainable and um, egalitarian and socially equitable society. But yeah, it's important to remember that we can win. You know, Jabaluka is another one that we won. You know, we've we've won a few over the years, and I think they should be um, they should be celebrated. Absolutely. And I think, Mercedes, we were talking the other day for um, an interview about Black Spark and actually mentioned Ian um, and some of the research that he's done in his books and about how sometimes we reflect on, you know, what us kind of small gatherings of people actually able to make a big difference. And, you know, I think the um, the ADEX protests in 91 did have a couple of thousand people there, but some of the other protests and the Adelaide one itself, like, that didn't even, you know, we didn't need to mobilise. It was called off before uh, it was even um, happening. But, uh, you know, I guess looking to the land forces protests coming up that you mentioned at the start, Mercedes, and there's the Avalon Air Show is going to be on next year as well. Uh, that You know, it doesn't necessarily take, you don't need 10,000 people. That would be great. But small groups of people can actually disrupt these kind of events as well. Oh, for sure. And I suppose yeah. when just listening to to uh, the context that Ian was explaining when he was talking about in the lead up to uh, Paydex and Adex, 
Um, it does sound a little bit now when we think about the the, content, the political and the military context we're in, it does seem a little bit like history repeating itself. You know, the, the building up of South Australia as a defence state, there's a really strong anti-nuclear campaigning going on and we're now seeing with things like AUKUS um, and Peter Dutton is now, you know, talking up about the reinvigoration of nuclear as an alternative energy and through that, the, obviously, the nuclear submarines and going into the subs in schools. So we're seeing the integration of the military defense, uh, military industrial complex into schools and universities. It does seem like there's a, alongside that, you know, how we can maybe be hopeful of looking at those contexts and, and how these things happen that with something like disrupt land forces that people are maybe starting to realise that these things are really seeping their way into every part of our lives. And I suppose... Jake, like a question I have is what do you see are the main shifts from, you know, the, the late 80s, early 90s and even into 2008 um, in the way that we campaign or how we mobilise? Well, for a start, um, uh, uh, there, there are a couple of things. Um, since 2001, the World Trade Centre attack, we've been Western, the Western world commenced what they called a war on terror and that we know that's bullshit but what it's led to is the securitization of our society we look at some of the actions we did at 8x89 and 8x91 we'd be shot if we tried to do that kind of thing today could you imagine could could we imagine setting a car in fire in front of the convention center today you just hmm. you just couldn't you, you couldn't do it you'd be shot um no question. Um, another thing is because life is so hard, economically hard at the moment, um, we can't afford, we, we, we couldn't afford to get 2,000 people to Canberra or to Brisbane. Um, it's, it's a whole different um, playing field that we're protesting on. And that's not to say that um, this is not an argument for not having those kind of confrontational protests. I'll never argue. I'll never argue against them. But it's interesting, um, Ian, love Ian, um, but I think he got part of the, I think he left out part of the Adelaide um, campaign, for example, and the Queanbeyan campaign, like where he said it was called off because the police said it was going to cost this much money and it's going to take 500 people and all the rest of it. That didn't just happen out of the blue. That happened because activists went to the police association in South Australia with a package of all the media from the ADEX campaigns, with a list of all the police injuries from the ADEX campaigns, and they were all to do with sunstroke and blisters. They talk about police injuries at ADEX, but they were sunstroke and blisters. Um, and we said, we don't want to fight you guys. This is not what we want to do. Therefore, we're willing to sit down and discuss with you nonviolent resistance techniques, blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. Of course they knew it was bullshit. We were saying bullshit. It was negotiation. But what we actually did is we forced the police and we forced the state government to say, well, this is what's going to happen. You can't say that this happened out of the blue. And we went to every major... Um, shopping precinct within a kilometre of the convention centre and we said, listen, we just want to be clear, this is not against you. However, letting you know six months in advance that this is going to happen on your streets. 
And so the whole Chamber of Commerce and Industry came out opposed to it. It was a way of, um, I guess, <clears throat> working a little, working a little bit differently. Of course, the end. Uh, I mean, the bottom line was, if you, when, when you know, for example, when they first announced the APDSE in Adelaide, I can't think of the bloke's name, but the press release came out and said it was going to be holding it. I immediately called him and and asked him if he was the bloke, Mike, whatever his name was, who was doing the um, APDC. He said, yeah, who are you? I said, I'm the bloke organising the protest against it. <laughs> and, and, you know, in the end he said, well, why are you calling me after a less than civil conversation? And I said, well, because when it's all done and dusted and you put your show on and we have thousands of people on the streets, unionists, students, nuns, anarchists, and the rest of it, the media are going to say, well, why did you feel the need to be so violent? And I'm going to be able to say, well, I didn't want to be violent, but we spoke to Mike, whatever your name is, and asked him not to do it, and he told us to F off. All right, so it was from the from day one just putting that pressure, pressure, pressure. And... Um, I'd like to see some more of that kind of pressure put on the government instrumentalities. It strikes me in, in hearing Jacob talk about that and also hearing Ian summarise, uh, you, know, you know, decades of work, how much work goes into doing something like that. And, you know, I guess that that's the difference between putting together a response to an event and hoping people turn up and things like that. And I remember the time, you know, Jacob up all night to cover every single angle of trying to call something like that off. It's not just a matter of saying we're going to have a protest, organising people and showing up at the front door. There was so much work that goes into that. Yeah, unless you're given that opportunity and those skills to be able to do that. And I, I think, um, yeah, I guess it's really hard and it comes down to that uh, idea of needing to bridge that gap between uh, the activists that have done these things before and and the new people that come in, you know, with their own ideas that some of which will be better than the ones that happened before and and some things that need to combine from the past. And I think that's where it's so great to have, you know, this show, even, you know, our show today that is combining those things. You know, Ian has told a really good summation of how the activists have done this before and, and combining that with um, yourself, Jacob, and you know, being someone who's who's had those ideas to push the boundaries, to find different ways to be able to agitate and organise. Like, uh, it's just yeah, not a question, I guess, but really invaluable. But I guess you know, how do you how do you go how do you go about kind of setting those things aside and and um, you know what can what can the activists heading up to Brisbane or already in Brisbane be looking at trying to do? Well, you know, one of the things. From my perspective, and this is just my personal thing as an activist, um, back in the early 190, we made the statement that in the first the first step in challenging the masters of war was to expose them. And so I think the first thing that one of the things I'm trying to do as part of my little separate campaign about this is talk about the different companies who are going to be at Land Forces. Like we all know about Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and, and all the rest of it, but I'm just looking, um, 
I've just opened the Land Forces website now and I urge everyone to do this. Go to the Land Forces website, which is landforces.com.au and you'll, you'll be faced with a participating exhibitor list. And on that exhibitor list, if you go down, there's, um, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of companies, you know, not, as I say, the, the Raytheons and Boeings and everything, but you think Avon, what do they do? Have a look at their website. They make respiratory systems and helmets and things. And and Babcock, who are uh, um, huge engineers in the defence industry. Um, you go down Bartlett Engineering in um, Ballarat, just a, most people in Ballarat would consider they make blinds. <coughs> Excuse me, but they also make carriers for their troop carriers and the Humvees and all that kind of thing. And that's the thing I think I'd like to to point out as part of this is that we think of the arms industry. Well, no one makes a battleship anymore. No one makes an aeroplane. It could be the little foundry, the little engineering workshop around the corner from where you live or from where your family live that are making the washers or the spring clips, or the paint, or the tyres. It's um, just about every large, medium-sized up engineering and manufacturing business in Australia is supplying the defence industry. I wish we could keep chatting, Jake. We're just about out of time for this afternoon's show. Hear more of this every week at a 5 o'clock on a Friday rave on 3CR. Um, but, yeah, to all listeners... If you can get up to Mianjin, to Brisbane, for the Disrupt Land Forces Conference, which is happening on the 1st to the 7th of October this year, uh, definitely head up there. There's going to be a lot happening. Um, and I just want to say before that also, uh, this coming Thursday, the 22nd of September at 1.30pm meeting at Birang Ma, uh, Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance have called a rally uh, to abolish the monarchy and that sovereignty has never been ceded because uh, we know that British colonialism has inflicted death and destruction and violence on First Nations peoples everywhere. So make sure you get down to that at 1.30 this coming Thursday the 22nd at Birang Ma. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.